So here now the very word of God, as it is given to us in the gospel of Luke, reading from the fifth chapter, verses 17 through 26. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all. And they glorified God and were filled with awe saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. And may the Lord bless this reading of his word to our understanding this morning. Let's ask him to bring it alive for us. Dear Lord, I, I pray not only that we can see this text for what it is, that we can visualize it in our minds, that we see the glory and the power of this healing, but that we make the connection, that we understand what Jesus is saying when He asks that question, what is more difficult to forgive sins or to say rise and get up your, pick up your bed and walk? Lord, we want to make that connection and then we want to personalize it, each one of us to ourselves to apply that and then ask ourselves how we would respond. And Lord, we know that we need your spirit to bring that out. So I ask for your guidance this morning that you would illuminate our hearts and illuminate our minds. In Jesus name we pray. Amen. Well, for the second week in a row, we have a very familiar kind of story before us. Uh, A desperately disabled man this time, not a diseased man, but a disabled man comes to Jesus. Jesus heals him and sends him on his way. But just as last week, when we looked at the cleansing of the leper, I told you at that time it was a straightforward story, but it's where Luke places it in his gospel that makes it so interesting and indeed profound. Well, this morning we have even an added dimension to this because he doesn't say be healed. He doesn't even say be clean. He says your sins are forgiven. And by doing that, he's going to draw the connection or at least start a discussion between sin and sickness and salvation and how those three coincide with each other. 
And so uh, that that is what I pray that I can bring out and make that connection for you in your minds this morning because this is a very central core part of the gospel. Now, if you remember last week, I, I, we, 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 we talked about Luke's discussion of the good news and how all through his gospel, he's been talking about Jesus and the presentation of the good news. I mean, literally starting with the angels announcing the child. He says, I bring we bring you good news of great joy. And, and then fast forwarding Jesus in the synagogue at, at Nazareth, reading from Isaiah 61, talking about how he had been anointed to preach the good news to the poor. And then finally, at the end of chapter four, how he, he made it clear that central to his uh, purpose and mission, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God for that reason, for that purpose I have been sent to this world. So Luke made it very clear to us that the good news of the kingdom of God was an essential part of Jesus' ministry. But what I brought out last week was that up until this point, he really hasn't told us what that good news is. And the way he does it, at least in my mind, is through these two stories of these two healings. Now, last week, we saw the cleansing of a leper, and we noticed that that was not only a horrible physical disease, but it was also a sign of spiritual uncleanness, and that when Jesus said to the leper, be clean, he was purifying him, he was making him clean, and we related that to what Jesus accomplished on the cross and through his perfect life, that we are made clean, we are purified, in fact, we are declared righteous before God. We're not going to stand before God, folks, unless we have perfect righteousness. And that is one of the things that Jesus accomplished on the cross. So that is part of the good news that Jesus is teaching. Well, we're going to get another part of it today. We're going to get the discussion of the essential atonement that occurs when our sins are forgiven. And that's what's going to come out in this magnificent story. But there's one other aspect of the context that I want to make sure you keep in your mind. We're not going to talk about it to the very end this morning. But that is that story that came earlier of Peter's reaction to Jesus when they had that miraculous catch. Do you remember that? Do you remember how Peter reacted to that miraculous catch? He fell down at the knees of Jesus on his knees and he cried out, depart from me. I am a sinful man, O oh Lord. He, he was he was so aware, so overwhelmed by his own sinfulness, realizing that sinfulness condemned him in the face of a holy God, knowing that Jesus had justified his holiness. Well, we're going to see that come into play at the very end of our discussion this morning, because we're not going to actually see that same response from the people in the room here. So with that said, let's jump into it as we see this very famous um, healing of the paralytic. Now, we have a lot of text, so you need to stay with me because we're going to move it very, move it th- through it very quickly this morning. So starting in the 17th verse, 
on one of those days, and we've already discussed this, that this is an arbitrary designation of time, very similar to the way he started out the story of the, of the leper and tying the two together. Because then he said while he was in one of these cities, and we talked about the fact that Luke is not giving us a sequential travelogue, but he is taking the events that Jesus did and putting them in an order that is important to him. And I believe he is showing us through these two healings what the good news actually is. So on one of those days, as he was teaching, once again, you want to see, this is what Jesus came to do, to teach and preach the good news of the kingdom of God. Every chance he got, you would find him, especially in this Galilean ministry, teaching and preaching that good news. And we're finding out what that good news is. Well, on this particular occasion, and for the first time that we hear in Luke, there are skeptics in the audience. Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there. Now, I'm not going to go into who the Pharisees were in any detail. I am going to kind of flesh out who the groups of Judaism were in the after church directly after the service. But they were one of four groups in Judaism in that time. There were the Pharisees, there were the Sadducees, there were the Zealots, and then the Essenes. And and, and the, the Pharisees were the, the legalist of the group. They they were the ones who were the doctrinal watchdogs. And that's kind of what they're doing here is they're checking Jesus out to see how his doctrine is. Well, the other group, the teachers of the law, sometimes you'll hear them referred to just as lawyers, but primarily they're referred to as they are later on as the scribes. Now, the scribes were not a fifth group in Judaism because most of them were indeed Pharisees, but not all of them. It's more of an office or a position that they held. They they were the, the professional scholars. And the scribes, for the most part, were the ones who were, I could say, responsible or guilty, depending on how you look at it, for creating all those oppressive rules and regulations that Jesus just really um, had a hard time with all throughout his ministry. But these two groups are, are there in the audience or in this crowded house listening to Jesus. And you know they're not there to with open minds to hear what he has to say. They're there uh, with kind condemnation and destruction in their hearts and minds. Now, one other thing that is, well, actually two other things in this particular verse. Notice that they had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem. More than likely a little bit of hyperbole there from uh, from Luke. Uh, if every village was represented there, there'd be a convention of Pharisees. So probably representative of the villages in Galilee. But importantly, they had come from Jerusalem and Judea. Now, what this points out is that Jesus has more or less hit the radar. Uh, in, in other words, they were conscious of the fact that huge crowds were following him and not a little bit envious. They were concerned about what he was teaching. So they are there to check out his doctrine and see if it goes along with their own. And of course, we know that it's not going to in the slightest. But I don't know if you remember, I just, I just 
just briefly mentioned it last week. We did deal with it in the after church in more detail. The fact that the leper, after he had been healed, he went running around and told everybody, even though Jesus specifically told him not to. And we talked about the messianic secret. Well, this is a, this is an example of why Jesus didn't want people telling everyone about what he was doing because that gets him on the radar. That means that the, that, that, that this group is going to start pursuing him and Jesus has a lot of teaching left to do before he gets driven to the cross by these people. So that was the reason, if you will, for that, um, that messianic um, secret. But notice the last sentence in that phrase and the power in that verse. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. Now, don't take that as a statement of Jesus was a man that God had visited just the power to heal with for this particular um, instance. It's actually the opposite of what Luke is telling us. Jesus is God incarnate. He is 100% God, 100% man. Difficult concept for us to understand. But he had within him. He didn't need to go out and find it. He had within him the ability, the power to heal. And this is going to be an example of that. But the focus is not going to be so much on this power coming on him as, as just for this particular time, but that 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 it is a power that stems from a, a, a divine authority. So this is actually just another statement of that divinity. Well, after that, now we're going to move into the, the, the famous arrival of this paralytic man. Let's take a look at the 18th verse. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. Now, now Luke doesn't tell us anything about the men. Uh, um, he just leaves it sort of in that broad, vague sense. Mark tells us that there were four. And, and that's an important visual because there's a bed requiring four men, one on each corner, to carry it. Now, we assume, just because of their diligence and their faithfulness, that these are good friends of the man. They are either friends or family or both, um, because it's not going to be so easy for them to get this man in front of Jesus, as we will see. Now, when Luke describes this man, he says that he was a man who was paralyzed, both Matthew and Mark use a different word. They, they say he was a paralytic. But Luke, who, as you know, is a physician, uses a more technical term. The term means, in its base meaning, that one of his limbs is withered or one of his limbs don't work. Now, that's the literal meaning of the word. Probably at least both of his legs are not working. They're not uh, capable because otherwise he might be limping along or using a crutch or leaning on someone's shoulder. But since they are carrying him in a bed, we know at least his legs don't work. We don't know how it happened. We don't know if he was born this way, whether or not he had an accident. But we do know that he is incapable of walking or of getting himself to Jesus 
these men are carrying him. Now, many scholars uh, take the fact that Luke has used this word paralyzed, that's a technical word, um, to to indicate that the man was actually a paraplegic, that, that he didn't have the use of any of his limbs. And the fact that it takes four men to carry him probably indicates that because he's dead weight. He's not able in any way to help them to get him to Jesus. So here's the process. They desire to bring the man to Jesus, obviously, because they want the man to be healed. The man wants to be healed. They've heard of Jesus. Now, we are back in Capernaum. Luke doesn't tell us that, but that's where we are. You may remember it wasn't long ago that on one amazing day of healing, not only was the the demon thrown out in the synagogue, not only was Peter's mother-in-law healed, but virtually everyone in town was healed. Apparently this man is so disabled that he was not able to make it to that healing because you remember Jesus got up the next morning and kind (laughs) of skedaddled out of town. But nonetheless, they have brought him there for the purpose of seeing him healed. But that became, that proved to be a very difficult thing. Let's take a look at the the next verse, 19. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. Now, this is probably the most famous uh, a part of, of this particular story. So let's see if we can visualize it because I want to make sure that you visualize it the way that it actually is. Um, the, the house was packed, jam-packed. You couldn't get in there. Mark tells us they couldn't even get to the door because the crowd was outside clustered around the house. And knowing that they weren't going to be able to get him in front of Jesus by going through the front door, their attention turned to the roof. Now, now many of you know that these Hebrew houses were usually small, almost always one story. And the roof, the way they built them, the roof was like an additional room. In other words, they would build the walls up, but rather than putting the the beams on top of the walls, they would embed them two to three feet or so down in the walls, leaving walls that were above the roof area. Then they would put the roof on, and that made the top of the house kind of a little courtyard. Uh, and up there, it was cooler during the summer months. They more light if you were doing something details like sewing or trying to read. Um, or they used to dry their food out up there. They did all kinds of things up on the roof. So it was a natural thing for them to turn and look at the roof of the houses. Now, usually the roof was accessed by an external stairs and usually very narrow, just enough for one person to get up. So four men with a stretcher, that's no small task um, to get up that. But what, what usually happened was the houses were built so close together, especially in a town, that each house might not have its own set of stairs. Now, if the excavation that they have done on the northern shore of the Sea of Galilee actually is Capernaum, well, you can look at the way the rooms were laid out, and those houses were jammed right next to each other, which would have meant that in order to get to the roof where Jesus was, they would have to go down to the end of the row of houses, make their way up that stairs, and then crawl across the roofs 
of however many houses were in between and the house that Jesus was teaching in. But they did that because they were they were determined. They, they were faithful in wanting to get their friend before Jesus because someone in that fivesome had faith. And Jesus is going to point that out. But let's kind of switch our perspective, okay? Because what happened is they started to dig through the roof. Now, the way those roofs were constructed, you'd have beams that went across embedded in the walls. And then they would put branches and sticks on top of those beams. And then they would press mud or clay in between them and it would harden. And actually that makes a pretty stable roof. In in the Caribbean, especially in Hades where I know it, it's called mud and wattle. And there's so many houses that are built that way with, with sticks that are woven in between other sticks and then mud or clay packed in. Now, I've been going to Haiti for 20 years, and some of the houses that I'm talking about were ancient when I first started going. And they've been through earthquakes, they've been through hurricanes, and they're still standing. They may lean a little bit, but they're still standing. So this was a pretty hard shell. So again, not easy for these men to get through. But they start digging through the roof. Now, Luke tells us there were some tiles on that roof, which would have meant this was an affluent house. Some people think they're back at Peter's house. I think Luke probably would have told us if it was Peter's house because he had done that before when Peter's mother-in-law was was healed. But regardless, this was a, a tile, a roof that also on top of this uh, 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 mud and wattle construction had tiles. So long story short, these guys had some doing to get through. So let's switch our perspective. Let's go inside the house. Let's imagine that there you are in this house, so close, so full of people. Jesus is sitting there and he's teaching. All of a sudden you hear thumps on the roof. And you wonder what's going on on that roof. And all of a sudden, a hole appears. Now, you're tight in there, so there's no space. And so, all of a sudden, the roof starts coming down on your head. Because, you know, they're digging through it right above you. I don't imagine the owner of the house was too pleased when he saw his nice roof being destroyed this way. Now, usually when you think about what happens next, you think about them, well, they just pushed some branches aside and lowered the guy nicely down in a horizontal kind of way. Well, that's probably not what happened. They probably dug just enough of a hole to get him through vertically, probably tied this to his legs and lowered him down and somehow then got him back to a horizontal before they plopped him on the floor. One can only imagine the... The, the stunned silence that occurred after that. In fact, I, I want to point that out. Do you, do you notice something that's missing here? Do you notice something that, that, that isn't part of this story that you might ex- expect? Nobody says anything. There, there, there's no words. The, the, the guys up on the roof looking down through the hole they made, they don't say, hey, Jesus, would you please heal our friend? The paraplegic doesn't say, I'm here to be healed. One can only imagine just the pregnant silence in the room as this man now lies before Jesus. And I think importantly, it's Jesus who breaks the silence. It's Jesus who sovereignly, without being asked, decides to heal this man. 
And that's what happens in the all-important 20th verse. Let's look at that one. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. Let's just take a look at that first one. There's three words I want you to see there. First of all, he saw their faith. Okay. How do you see faith? How does one see faith? Faith is an internal spiritual condition. It's a gift of God. But how do you actually see from an external position? Now, of course, we know Jesus knows the hearts of men. He looks right into the heart and he sees them. So that could be one way. But I don't think that's exactly what Luke means here. The way that you see faith, and James makes this very clear in his epistle, is by the good works, the actions on the outside. Because if you really have faith on the inside, James says, for as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. So in other words, if there's faith on the inside, you're going to see the outcropping or the outworking of that faith on the outside by good actions and good deeds. Now, Jesus has just watched these men bring that their friend and lower him down. That's the action, I think, of faith. I mean, that's how I see faith because I see their diligence. But notice what Luke says next. Seeing their faith. Not his faith. Not, not just the paralytic's faith. In fact, we don't even know if the paralytic had faith. But what we do know is those four friends had faith. Now, be careful and listen to me. Don't get me wrong here. I don't want to make too much of a deal out of this. But if those friends had not had the faith that they had, that paralytic would not have gotten to Jesus on this day. Now, it does not mean, trust me, I'm reformed. I know that Jesus is going to happen one way or the other. But I just want you to see the focus on the thereness of the, the faith, uh, of the impact. In some way, Jesus was impacted by the, the show of faith of, of all of this group. That's the reason it says there. And, and in that sense, brothers and sisters, they are, and I don't want to say they're part of, of his uh, uh, healing, but they're laying the road down for him. And, and I think that that is something that all we as Christians, we need to recognize something, is that part of our responsibility as a Christian is to do just that, is to, is to lay the road down, is to make it possible, is to, is to help our friends along by what we say and, the, and telling them about Jesus, but also in the way that we live. And I know that many of you probably had a friend in, in your life who was instrumental and introducing you to Jesus and explaining the foundations of that. I had one in my life. My best friend. Because it was my best friend who exhibited Christ for me when I didn't know Christ. It was my best friend who made sure that our daughters went to church when I wasn't taking them to church. It was my best friend who was that light on the shore who showed the way out of darkness. Her love for the gospel, her love for scripture was something that impressed me. And, I, and I'm not going to say that I'm here because of her, although to a large degree I am, because she and a bunch of women used to get together every Tuesday and pray for me. I've told you many times, pray for me, either Lord, take him or kill him. Uh, I mean, one or the other. You know, either bring him out of where he is or just get rid of him because something's got to happen here. And and that kind of lays the road down. So, brothers and sisters, William Hendrickson turns that around and he says, you know something, we as Christians have that responsibility. 
Your friends, when you become a Christian, they may laugh at you, as certainly as my old drinking buddies did. You know, they may scorn you. They, they may make it difficult. They may not invite you to social functions because you're an old fuddy-duddy and they don't want you there. But you know something? If the Lord turns things around, the light needs to be shining out of the darkness. If you're that light, then you have paved the way to help them to come to Christ. And that's what these friends represent. They they serve a powerful function as far as bringing all of this. And Jesus notices that faith. Now, one other thing I want you to to see here is the comparison, I think. We are comparing in the, the redemptive process... Two of these stories, and not, we're not really comparing, we're sort of lumping them together, but that brings a natural comparison between the leper and this paralytic. Now, when we look at their faith, when we look at the difference in their faith, well, at least the leper had enough faith to say, Jesus, if you will, in your sovereignty, if it is your will to heal me, I know that you can, you can make me clean. Well, the paralytic didn't even say that. We, we don't know that he was even the one who had the faith. We assume that he does. But nonetheless, brothers and sisters, it was the sovereign work of Christ to heal this man. And that is exactly what, um, what we are seeing here. Well, anyway, let's go on to the uh, uh, 21st. Oh, no, let's go on to the second part of that. Man, your sins are forgiven. Now, remember when we talked about the leper and I said the last thing the leper would have ever dreamed that Jesus would have done was to reach out and touch him? Well, the last thing that this paralytic probably ever dreamed would happen when he got down in front of Jesus is that Jesus would say, man, your sins are forgiven you. That man, we can soften it a little bit. New American Standard uses the word friend, which would be a little bit uh, more along the line of the way Jesus used it. Both Matthew and Mark use the word son. But nonetheless, instead of hailing the man, Jesus says your sins are forgiven you. You can only imagine the look on that poor paralytic's face. What? I want to get healed. I want to walk. You know, I didn't come here to have my sins forgiven. The friends are up on the roof looking at each other and saying, did we just put ourselves, we're going to get sued for tearing this roof up. Did we do that so that he could have his sins forgiven? And you can just kind of hear the hush muttering going around the room. Did he actually say what I thought he said? Did he really just say your sins are forgiven you? Now, we're not given that reaction, but we are given the Pharisees and scribes' reaction. And I imagine that was what was going through everyone's head. Because that is in the 21st verse. And the scribes and Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? That's a very contemptuous, derogatory phrase. doesn't come out quite that, that uh, derogatory in, in English. But they are really um, snidely saying, who on earth does this hick from Nazareth think he is? Coming up and saying that he has the authority to forgive sins. Only God has that authority. All right, something we need to recognize here. Theologically, they're absolutely right. 
Theologically, that is a sound theological statement. Their Christology is all wrong because they don't understand who Jesus is. They're looking at Jesus as a man. And they are saying, as a man, you are blaspheming if you say that you have the ability to heal. Or, I'm sorry, the ability to forgive sins. The the Hebrews basically had three levels of blasphemy. Um, and well, I'm saying the, the Hebrews scripture um, has three le- levels of bra- blasphemy in graduating degrees of severity. The first was to speak against God's word, to, to, to speak negatively against the word of God. The second was to speak negatively or blasphemously against the person of God, just like it says in the Ten Commandments, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. But the worst kind of blasphemy, the most heinous kind, and therefore the most severe, was to either claim to be God or to claim to be able to do something that only God can do. And without a doubt, Jesus in this passage claims to do something that theologically correct only God can do. Isaiah puts it this way, God speaking through Isaiah, I I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. No one else but me, God speaking, has the authority or the ability to forgive sins. And Jesus has just said to this man, your sins are forgiven. What an extraordinary, incredible statement that is to claim to be grant now, to claim to be God. Now, he's going to Say this more definitively, but a little bit later on. So I'm going to push off the, the, the answer to that to, to just a moment. But here's what I want you to see now. There's no middle ground, my friends. You hear a lot about Jesus just being a good man and teaching good things and having a good ethical system. And you know what really matters is love. Love wins. And, and so they de-supernaturalize Jesus. They water him down. And they say that, you know, we just need to pay attention to his teaching. Well, this passage makes that impossible. Because Jesus has just as God. The only reason he can do this is because he's the God man. That's the only reason that this is not blasphemy. If indeed he is nothing more than a good spirited, good teaching man, then he is a blasphemer. And if he's a blasphemer, he's a liar. And as C.S. Lewis said, you're going to have to make a decision one way or the other. He's either a liar or a lunatic or he's Lord. You see, and that's what the Pharisees and the scribes don't understand. But you and I do, that he is Lord. And so he is able to make that statement. But he totally takes the middle ground out. No wiggle room, no gray area, nothing. He is either Lord or he's a blasphemer. And he's not worth us spending any time anymore talking about this. And now we're going to... See the, the the unbelief of the Pharisees. I'm I'm going to wait and I'm going to deal with that in the after church. It's kind of it kind of fits in with our study of Acts right now. The anatomy of unbelief, but in a backhanded kind of way, in the kind of an unwitting way, if you will, these Pharisees and scribes are affirming who Jesus is. Even though they think they're doing the opposite. They actually, based on what happens next, 
based on what Jesus does, they're actually affirming when they say only God can forgive sins. And Jesus is going to make it absolutely clear that he has that authority. So in essence, they've just said, well, the only solution is that you are God. Well, anyway, let's take a look at Jesus' response. Once again, he's going to expand on this. Look in verse 23. He asks a question, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiving you, or to say, rise and walk? Now, I want you to see what he's doing. He, he's, he's starting a discussion here. He's making a correlation between sin and sickness. Now, forgive me for using that word. Actually, I'm looking for, I don't do this very often, but I was looking for an alliteration, you know, sin, sickness, sanctification, I mean salvation. Um, but I'm using sickness in a very broad sense. I'm using sickness to kind of incorporate the four Ds or the five Ds, if you, if you will, um, disability, deformity, disease, um, uh, demon possession, and death. Okay, everything, all that is a result of the fall, sin with a capital S, I'm including in sickness. So that is what Jesus is, first of all, drawing our attention to, that there is a direct correlation between sin and sickness. In other words, Adam and Eve were first uh, made in the Garden of Eden. They were made sinless, but with the potential to sin. And they were not meant to die. They weren't meant to have disease or disabilities or deformities or to be demon-possessed. That was not the original plan. They weren't made that way. That all came as a result of the fall. So all of sickness is indeed the result of sin. Now, what, what Jesus is doing when he asks that question, he says, what's easier to forgive sins or to, to say that pick up your bed and walk to heal? Now, what he's trying to do here and what we need to see is that Jesus came to seek and save the lost. This is what he came to do. He came so that we might be redeemed. That's the whole idea of the cross work. Now, what Jesus is saying here is that I can either cure the symptom or I can cure the disease. If I have a headache and I take aspirin and my headache goes away, I've cured a symptom, but I may not have cured the disease. You see, if I've got a brain tumor, that headache's going to come right back. And and it's going to keep coming back until that tumor eventually kills me unless something is done about it. And that's exactly what Jesus is saying. I did not come to give you any aspirin to fix the symptoms. I came to fix the disease. I came so that I can eradicate the disease. Now, let's put ourselves in Jesus' shoes. No, let's switch it. Let's put ourselves in the shoes of the unbelieving people there. Jesus asked a question, what's easier, to forgive sins or to heal this man who's a paraplegic who can't walk? Well, obviously, to a human being, to unbelievers, it's a lot easier to forgive sins, right? Because anyone can say that. I mean, I can say your sins are forgiven and, and, and you can say my sins are forgiven. The question is, are they forgiven? Well, we don't know because forgiveness is in the mind of God and no one can see it. And since I really don't believe in God anyway, that's really easy for me to do. 
I can go to a priest who can give me absolution. <laughs> like he does to the Godfather, for goodness sakes. And forgive his sins. Well, are his sins actually forgiven? Only God knows because forgiveness is in the heart and mind of the one the transgressions are against. So we can't see that. So the harder thing for a human is to tell a man who can't walk to get up and take his bed and go home. But you see, Jesus is looking at it from a different perspective. He's looking at it from a divine perspective. And he's talking about two things that are in the realm or the dominion of divinity. And of the two, the problem, the greatest difficulty is the forgiveness of sins. That's not easy. God himself had to come into space and time as, a, as, as God in the flesh in order for sins to be forgiven. That's not an easy thing to do at all. I mean, even prophets and the apostles later on are going to have the ability to say, get up and walk and even bring the dead back. Elijah has done that. Other people have the ability to heal. But Jesus and Jesus alone has the authority on earth to forgive sins. And he is going to make that absolutely clear. And what he says next, look in the 20, oh, where are we? The 24th verse. But that you may know. That the Son of Man, that's his favorite title for himself, that is Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God here on earth to save people from their sins. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. Now, notice what Jesus did not say. God, let's just spend some time here. This is hugely significant from a, oh, God, let me throw some big words out at you. Theological, Christological, and soteriological stance. Just from, from God and Jesus and salvation and how those all fit together. This is hugely significant. Okay? Jesus says that your sins are forgiven. But so that you can know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He did not say so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to heal paralysis. He said, so that you might know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Stand up and walk. Okay? It's a, it, it, it is a, an illustration of what Jesus and Jesus alone can do. Stay with me, please. When Jesus says... Your sins are forgiven. That has to be agreed upon by God. You see, because God is the only one who can forgive sins. We've already known that. We've already established that. Everyone in the room agrees with that. God and God alone can forgive sins. And guess what? God and God alone can tell a paraplegic without any possibility of getting out of that bed. God and God alone can have him stand up, take his bed and go home. That is an out and out God oriented miracle. Only God can do these two things. So Jesus doesn't say so that you might know that I can make this man stand up. He says so that you know I have authority to forgive sins. You know what has to happen? God has to agree. God has to agree that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins because God then makes those legs work, causes those legs to, to instantly be able for him to stand up. God affirms what Jesus said. The only way that that ever would happen is if God affirmed it. It's very similar to the resurrection. 
When, G- when God raised Jesus from the dead, it was to say he's everything he said he was. He did everything that he said he did, and I accept his sacrifice on your behalf. Otherwise, his bones would still be in that grave, and, and, and he would be smoldering away, and we would all be lost in our sins. But because Jesus, the Son of Man, has authority on earth to forgive sins, God causes the man to pick up his bed and go home. Okay? I mean, that's the most definitive statement of his divinity that you can get. You can't get any more definitive than that. Now, let's look at the result. Immediately, he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on. Picked up, I love the way Luke says that. Picked up his prison. Remember, Jesus says, I come to preach good news to the poor and to set the captives free. That sin that binds us, the result of that sin was his, his paralysis. And so the, 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 the source, his jail, his boundaries, his bonds, he picks up and he goes home. Notice the way Jesus heals immediately, completely. There was no rehabilitation time. There was no, uh, you know, we've got to have to walk a little bit. These old withered legs have never carried me before. None of that. Pick up your bed. Go. You're healed. Why are you healed? Because I eradicated the disease. And so, therefore, the symptoms are gone completely and forever. He goes his way glorifying God. That's the chief end for which we were made, brothers and sisters, to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And we see a man who is redeemed, like a woman who is redeemed, and whose sins are forgiven. What is our calling? What do we do for the rest of eternity? Glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Now this 26th verse is the one that causes me a little bit of pause. This is where... Peter comes back in. Remember, I told you Peter was going to show back up. And what happened earlier when that miraculous catch. And, G- and Peter is face to face with the divinity of Christ. This is, this is the way the rest of the people responded. And amazement seized them all. They were glorif- And they glorified God. And they were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. Now, I think we can assume this doesn't include the Pharisees and the scribes. I mean, they're already plotting in the absolute irrational reaction to this. They're plotting how they're going to kill Jesus. I mean, that just doesn't make any sense. But the rest of the people, we learn four things about them. First of all, they're filled with amazement. They're absolutely blown away at what Jesus has just done. They, they, they're also Filled with awe, that, that's the word there, that, that's fear. There's a holy, a healthy fear because they have just come into the presence of the holy. They have just seen a man who can't possibly uh, fix himself, stand up and walk and walk away. And so, and so they glorify God. But they're theists. They believe in God. They're, they're, they're Jews. And so, of course, they're going to glorify God because they've just seen a manifestation of God. And and what do they say to each other? They say, we've seen some amazing things. We've seen extraordinary things today. Boy, what an understatement that is. You've just seen God. You have just seen the holiness of God displayed before you. Now, here's my point. All of that's good and, and it's all appreciated, but... 
Well, here's Peter's response. You see, Peter was was in the face of a much, in my mind, lesser miracle than that. Just caught a bunch of fish. But when they caught that fish, he realized the divinity of Christ, that he is in the presence of the holy, and he falls down. And he gets on his knees before Jesus, and he says, Depart from me, my sins condemn me. I am an unpurified, unholy, sinful man. And I have absolutely no reason to be in your presence. And then Luke immediately turns around and gives us an illustration of that heart with a leopard who falls down in front of Jesus and says, Begs him for his mercy. If you will, sovereignly, you can make me clean. Where's that repentance out of these people? It's not there. And and, and you see, that's the tragedy of of unbelief. I mean, you may be wowed by by a miracle. You know, you see people saved. You see lives changed. You get all sentimental and emotional because of music and all kinds of things can happen. And you think that is a conversion experience. But where's the repentance? There has to be repentance There has to be a mortification over your sin. There has to be the realization when you're in the presence of a holy God that you're not holy and you can never have a relationship with Him unless something extraordinary happens in your heart. And that's exactly what Luke has shown us. Because that's why Jesus came. So the big question that we are left with here at the end of this passage, especially when we look at the response of the people, How will you respond? What is your response when it comes face to face with the holy? What is your response when, like Peter, you recognize that Jesus is God and that he is perfect in his holiness and you are not? Well, let me... If you haven't been able to follow the abstract nature of these last two weeks, let me just kind of spell it out for you. Because what Luke has done for us, at least in my mind, is he has described what the good news is. And here's the good news. God in his mercy and his grace, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have ever, uh, everlasting life. God in his great mercy and grace recognized something. My holiness and your sinfulness is just simply not going to cut it. And I love you so much. I want relationship with you. I want reconciliation with you. I want you to be with me where I am for eternity. And so therefore he sent his very own son to come to this world to show us the way to live. But most importantly to go to that cross. Because it was on that cross that he wins the two things we have just seen. Because it is on that cross that our sins are forgiven. The Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. Now we're not going to get into the entire idea of atonement and substitutional sacrificial atonement. Someone has to pay for those sins. And that is what Jesus did on the cross. He died with our sins upon him so that they could be forgiven by God and God could remain holy and just. And so... 
it, 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 it is the part of the gospel that is so hugely significant that the Son of Man came so that our sins could be forgiven. But not just the sins forgiven. That's when we go back to the leper and we realize we must also be purified. We must be righteous. And that is why Jesus came also, lived a perfect life, died in perfection so that he could impute his righteousness to us. Because without that righteousness, not a single person will ever stand in the presence of God because he is perfect in his holiness and requires righteousness out of us. And so therefore, the two things that make it possible for you to have relationship and reconciliation with God, the forgiveness of your sins, the payment of those sins, and the righteousness that you are wrapped in, those two stories Luke has just told us so that you know what the good news is. So let me leave you with this. Make it as personal as I possibly can. Because something has to happen, folks. That is the greatest gift that anyone has ever received. That is the heart. That's when Jesus says, it is hard to forgive sins. God himself had to come down and hang on a cross. He himself had to shoulder our sins. He himself had to go through the wrath of God that was meant for us. That's not easy. It's not easy to forgive sins. But that's what he's done for us. And what we have to do is we have to repent. That's why Peter's so important here. You have to recognize your sins condemn you. If you do not recognize that your sins condemn you, you will never need a Savior. And if you don't need a Savior, you will never be saved. It's just that simple. So you need to recognize that your sins are the reason you're sick. That sin and sickness impede your ability to save yourself. And Jesus came so that sin and sickness could be eradicated and salvation take its place. What a beautiful picture we have here. As Peter comes and falls down at the feet of Jesus and he acknowledges his sin. As the leper falls down at the feet of Jesus and he says to Jesus, if you will, in your sovereignty, you can make me whole. That's what you need to do. Fall at the feet of Jesus and say, if it is your will, dear Lord, I am mortified over my sins, but I believe in my God given belief that you can save me. You can make me clean. And you know what Jesus will do? I can tell you this on the authority of Scripture. I don't have the authority to forgive your sins. But I do have the authority to tell you about the one who can forgive your sins. And on the authority of Scripture, I can tell you that Jesus will take you in his arms. And he will say, my dear son, my dear daughter, your sins are forgiven you. And when you say, will you make me clean? He says, I can and I will Be clean. And when he says to the paralytic, pick up your bed and go home. I think that to us, that's just a little different. Leave that bed behind. Those bonds that you've had your whole life that have held you a slave to sin, leave them behind. And instead of go home, come home. 
For in my Father's house are many, many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. My dear friends and brothers and sisters, that is the good news of the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Our dear Lord, thank you for the clarity of your word. Thank you for the privilege of even being able to read it and understand it. I do pray, dear Lord, that in the understanding of those who are gathered here this morning, those who might be listening online now might see this broadcast many years from now, that, dear Lord, your spirit would work through them in that heart, through these words in their hearts, and they would come to know. You and you alone have the ability to forgive sins and you offer it freely for those who will believe, those who will bend the knee in submission and surrender. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.